So we come now to our panel conversation and Bonnie asked me to moderate, but I'm realizing um, in this list of questions, we didn't leave space for you guys to introduce yourselves. So I wonder if you want to uh, each um, just give us a brief introduction. Uh, and let's see, Bonnie, do you want to go first? I can. Hi, everyone. My name is Benita Croyle. I go by Bonnie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I bring greetings from Tucson, Arizona, where I attend another Mennonite church named Shalom. So I bring greetings to you this morning at 833 it is here. Um, I, like Hillary said, I have known her since 2009, um, and I have been a Mennonite my entire life. I grew up in Lancaster County. I attended Bossler Mennonite Church and then James Street Mennonite Church. Then when I went to Heston College in Kansas, I attended a variety of Mennonite churches in Kansas, then back in Pennsylvania and now here, settled in Tucson. So I'm looking forward to our conversation this morning, uh, and I'll pass it over to my friend, Star. Good morning, everyone. I am Starlisha. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am coming to you from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Lancaster City, not the county to be exact. Um, it's a beautiful day here. It's a beautiful day in Pennsylvania, as my dad would always say. Um, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I grew up on a farm in a small town called Mercersburg, Pennsylvania in Franklin County grown up Methodist, and then I attended Messiah College, which is now Messiah University, which I have to start making that switch in my head. Um, and they are a Brethren in Christ church. And I fell in love with the Anabaptist tradition at Messiah. And I really, really love a lot of those, um, just that history and that tradition. And then I attended a non-denominational church when I moved to State College, Pennsylvania. And then from State College, I moved here to Lancaster almost six whole years ago, and I attend and joined a United Methodist Church here in Lancaster City. I'm so grateful to be in fellowship with all of you this morning, um, and I look forward to chatting with all of you in a little bit. And I will pass it over to Polisa. Yay. Oh, I was already unmuted. Can you hear me? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm technologically um, illiterate, at least for the moment. Uh, my name is Felisa Mackey. I am really glad to be joining you guys this morning. I was born in Baltimore. I moved around a lot in Maryland. I was not raised in church. Um, I got saved when I was about 20, and I started attending a non-denominational church after for about a year, and then I spent about five years in the Southern Baptist um, Church um, in Northern Maryland. So uh, then I moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is where I live now, specifically, like Sarah said, the city, not to be confused with the county. Um, I attended Lancaster Bible College for a few years. Hopefully I will graduate this December. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to be having this conversation with you guys. Thank you all for being here. Um, so uh, we want to start with the question, how does racism manifest in American Christianity uh, from customs, cultures, missions, and STAR? We were going to start with you. 
Sure. Um, so one thing that Bonnie, Polisa, and I like to do when we do these panel discussions is we like to lay out our shared language first. Um, so I just want to go through that before I launch into answering the question. So here are the definitions that we'll be working with today as we speak with you all. So we believe that racism is prejudice versus power. And a lot of a lot of times people believe that it's just one race hating another race. Um, but it really does come down to which race holds the power in the institutional systems and who uh, benefits from those. The second definition is, definition is anti-racist slash ally. So someone who is anti-racist would be opposed to the unfair treatment of people, committed to undoing racism, and actively acknowledges the limits of their knowledge about other people's experiences, and engages in doing the work of checking themselves for stereotypes, prejudice, and discrimination. Someone who would be an anti-racist ally would confront racism, and seek to live in ways that challenge systemic oppression and are committed to non-complacency. The next definition is whiteness. Whiteness is a socially and politically constructed system. It does not just refer to skin color, but it is an ideology based on beliefs, values, behaviors, habits, and attitudes which result in the unequal distribution of power and privilege based on white skin color. Whiteness places people, places white people in a place of structural advantage where white cultural norms and practices go unnamed and unquestioned, which will lead directly into the answer to this question. The next definition is white supremacy. This term is often connected to extremist right-wing hate groups, such as the KKK. However, the term is often used in anti-racist work as, of course, an, as to force an acknowledgement of the belief systems underlying whiteness. Therefore, white supremacy is seen as the ideology which perpetuates white racism. This ideology exists in both the overtly prescriptive form, for example, the white supremacy that we attach to right-wing white power groups, and as the self-perpetuating cultural structure also known as whiteness. And then the last definition is one that I just recently came in contact with um, through having these conversations with Bonnie and Polisa, and that is spiritual bypassing. Spiritual bypassing is when spiritual or religious practices can be used to invalidate or explain away people's lived experiences and psychological wounds and or avoiding dealing with the difficulties of reality. And I will actually use that definition to answer the first question. Um, one of the things that, and maybe this will come up, I'm kind of just looking at my notes, but one of the things that we talk about often is when a black person might share their experience and a white person might say, oh, well, you know, just give it to God, right? Hand over your problem to God and he'll take care of it, which invalidates the harm that has been caused to people of color. Um, another 
definition of that would be another example of that would be oftentimes we hear I I'm going to speak from the I perspective as much as I can. Um, oftentimes I hear a lot of my spiritual white friends who will just say, oh, love and light. We can't fight. We shouldn't have conflict. Yes, there's racism, but if everybody just got along and did some yoga, it'll all be okay. And that is one of the biggest missteps, I think, that American spiritualism and Christianity hits on because nobody likes confrontation. I am the youngest of four girls and I have I have done some really ridiculous things to break up fights between my sisters when I'm not even the focal point, right? Nobody likes confrontation. So that is bypassing in a way. It, it's not acknowledging the problem at its core, but deflecting to something that isn't a problem over here. Um, so I think that's something that we run into a lot is white Christians are often like, you know, if we maybe if we just don't talk about it and if we just pray about it or if we just do a sermon series about it, racism will go away. And that is the exact opposite of the work that needs to be done. Um, so that's my that's my start, and I will pass it over to Polisa. Thank you. Um, couldn't agree more with everything you said. Um, I've definitely seen spiritual bypassing be used to ignore the ways in which racism is called out within the Christian church. Um, I'm going to start with colonization of missions in the missions field, but also just in general, because I think when we're looking at how racism manifests in American Christianity, we have to understand the root, to understand the fruit, not to use that cliche, but it's something I've been thinking a lot, like, how did we get here? And it's important to um, remember that white supremacy and racism and Christianity have been fused together since the initial colonizing of this country. What I mean by that is, in, um, for example, we have the Doctrine of Discovery. The Doctrine of Discovery was created in the 1400s by I think his name was Pope Alexander, basically giving European theologians and explorers and people that sought to go all over, not only spreading Christendom and Christianity, but also they were going and finding new lands, places to conquer, um, gold, treasure. And basically what the Doctrine of Discovery said um, was that if, civilized European Christian people come across a nation or group of people that are not Christian, that are heathen or ungodly, which typically meant brown, black and brown people that do not believe the same way that we do. God is giving you the right, the holy mandate to conquer them, to take from them. In, in effect, it wasn't even considered stealing. Like you could do whatever you wanted to people that didn't believe like you basically. And this doctrine is kind of the impetus for white supremacy in this country. And the fact that it had this religious undertone of God is giving you the mandate, God is giving you the blessing to civilize these savage, native, uncolonized, un unbaptized people 
it kind of takes mission work and turns it into colonizing. And it, there's a way in which they became fused together. So from that point on, I think that's how, that's how we see things like theologians and, and ministers putting together apologetic series in the 1700s and the 1800s to defend slavery using scripture and justifying taking land from native people and indigenous people on the grounds that God told them that this was the only way to save them from their heathen ways. So when we talk about how racism manifests in American Christianity today, we can't negate the history of European Christianity in particular being used as almost a Trojan horse in order to harm vast communities of black and brown people. And how that still manifests today is in missions work. We see a lot of the times, like I've been in a lot, I've, I don't have a main church right now, but I've visited a lot of different churches and I've seen the fact that a lot of predominantly white churches tend to go to third world countries or black and brown countries. And there's this rhetoric that's used to talk about, oh, we have to go in there and we have to save them and we have to liberate them to the light of the Lord which is true, missions work is to share the gospel, but there's a lack of dignity, there's a lack of respect, I think, for some of these groups of people that may be different. So, yeah, that's, it's just a matter of asking who is the one that always seems to be in power to be benevolent, giving money or resources? And what does that say? How does that reinforce racism, that idea that, black and brown people need sort of a white benevolent savior in order to save them from their own poverty. But in reality, a lot of their poverty and systemic issues were caused by colonization, imperialism, missions work. So that's something to examine as well. But I'll pass it over to Bonnie. Thanks, P. Um, I wanted to kind of also go back to, you have to know the root to know the fruit, right? So when we're talking about racism, I think it's important to, to think about it in two layers, right? So we have the micro, we can look at the individual church system, we can look at the macro. So that's some of those questions of like, what is the environment that has continued to perpetuate racism, right? When we ask some of those questions rather than moving from like, how do we get more black faces in white spaces? I think when we ask some of those systemic questions, it then allows us to reframe and rethink and reimagine creative solutions. Also, when you're talking about Polisa, um, about mission work, I think it's so important when we're talking about the scripture for today, doing justice. In order to do justice, we have to know the wrongdoing, right? We have to know the missteps, the harm that we're creating. And so when I hear this verse from Micah 6.8, I think so often, so for me personally, I'm like, okay, I, I think I'm doing the work, but if I don't know the harm that I'm creating, I'm not going to be doing the work. And so I think it's important when we're talking about what is racism manifest, when we can give concrete examples, those are ways that we can then think about the harm that we're enacting. How are ways that we can repair the racial harm that's happening if there's a way to do that? Um, and, then, and then move forward. 
So when I'm thinking about how does racism manifest in American Christianity, specifically in the customs, cultures, and missions, yes, the colonization and missions, but I also think we have to um, fuse together racism and the idea of systems of whiteness. So we have this graphic that is too small to share, but there's a few things that I wanted to just pull out from there. So when we talk about how does whiteness operate, and I wanna be really clear that whiteness is different than white people. Right. Um, so when we talk about whiteness, I think ways that it shows up and reinforces racism in the Mennonite church, because I, I'm a Mennonite, so I'll talk specifically about the denomination that I know and love, um, is that it can show up in the ways that we talk about time. Right. Um, Polisa was talking a little bit about historical framing. One of the things, um, this book called The Color of Compromise, which police told me I had to read, so of course I'm reading it, um, provides some historical insight about where time happened in white predominant churches, how we, we came to care about time. Um, and what's interesting about that is that in slavery, when people were talking about how do we bring the gospel to those that we have enslaved, they talked about how people that were black were emotional in their worship. And they talked about how when they were emotional in their worship, they didn't you know, get back in time for chores. Um, and so, seeing kind of that historical framing of how that still manifests in church about how we're so important about, you know, we got to be done at 11. Like I remember I, my mom is a worship leader. And so I remember like, she'd be like, okay, we can't, we can't do that next song because we have to get back to the sermon or we have to skip. And I remember thinking there's a freedom when we allow ourselves this emotional ability to bring our full selves into church. What does it mean to bring our full selves into church? What does it mean to allow space for every person to bring their full self into church? I think some of the ways that we can talk about how to allow people to bring our full selves into church is to think about how are we investing in our leaders? If we are saying that we as a historic peace church care deeply about allowing every person to bring them full selves into church, about bringing black and brown people into our church, I think we have to look from a top-down structure and say, if we care about diversity, if we care about racial work, if we care about racial justice, every single person has to be able to lead and speak with complexity about racism. And that means we're going to talk about how we're doing our hiring practices. If you cannot talk and speak about racial justice with nuance and complexity, then maybe you are not qualified to lead. If you are not, and not just at the pastoral level, but at the executive level and at our Sunday school level. And I know when I've had these chats before, people are like, well, we're already having trouble retaining our Sunday school teachers. What happens if that means we can now reimagine and rethink and re-envision the way in which we do Sunday school? What happens if that means, okay, we're going to have Sunday school once a month with a teacher who has the time and we're paying and compensating them for their emotional labor and their time. And then the other three Sundays, we're going to do intergenerational Sunday. Or maybe one Sunday, we're going to have a mechanic Sunday at our church once quarantine is over. Or, or maybe we're just going to have different ideas about what it looks like to work together. And it allows the Holy Spirit to work through us in new and creative ways. I think when we start saying these are our values, this is what we care about. This is what the Lord is calling us to do. And we demand that that complexity and that nuance is then pushed into every aspect of our leadership. We are going to radically, radically change 
our church, I think we're going to radically know what it means to love our neighbor. We're going to understand the ways in which we're, we're harming one another. I think um, part of the way racism also shows up in our church is how do we repair racial harm, right? So when we talk about racism, I often hear in, Man in Mennonite churches, especially this idea of racial reconciliation or the church that I belong to participates in reparations. Um, but how do we how do we get there? How do we get to reparation work? How do we get to understanding harm that we've committed? And what does it look like then to extend with open hands and say, I have created harm and I am coming to you and recognizing the harm and I would like the opportunity to work and move forward with you. I think a couple things happen. Um, I wanna speak specifically, a few weeks ago, we did one of these conversations and we were doing the work and we were doing the work and we got some feedback and they said, we really noticed your use of gendered pronouns and that was very painful for us. We had to acknowledge that and send an apology email. And one thing that, I, that taught me is when we do harm, we can name the harm that we did, that clues in the person that was harmed, how we understood that we harmed them. We can say, I'm sorry, and then ask for, can I have the opportunity to repair racial harm? And they can say no, and that is a valid and complete answer. I think as churches, when we talk about racism, as we're learning the ways in which we've perpetuated and created harm, we can go to those that we have harmed and said, this is how we have harmed you, that we understand. Be ready to, to, to learn and to listen, and maybe you won't get that feedback, but be ready with open hands and say, can I have the opportunity to move forward? And this is how we can do this or wait for them to tell you how we can do this. I think it's interesting this moment that we have where the black and brown communities are saying, we need police reform, we need justice. There's this not listening that's happening, right? Because we're seeing, oh, like there's no more Aunt Jemima or there's, there's this disconnect. I think as churches, when we say we wanna repair harm, hold space, pay attention to how people are calling you in. How are people asking you to repair racism that has been harmed? I think those are important ways when we use our ears, when we come to each other in the spirit of love and saying, I want to deeply listen to how I have harmed you. How can we move forward together? That is the spirit in which we love our neighbors. That's how we are doing justice. When we understand how we have contributed or remain complicit in systems of racism and harm, when we come to one another in that way, I think it is powerful. I think that is Jesus inspiring us to move towards our neighbor. But one, the one last thing, I know I'm talking a little bit long, but the one last thing before I hand it back to Hillary for our next question is, this is just in the Mennonite tradition as I've been in conversation with Polisa and Star, I realized that other traditions don't have lament, at least in the way that Mennonite churches talk about lament. And I wanted to touch on that briefly because a few weeks ago, Glenn Guyton issued a call for costly discipleship. And I love that because for so long in the Mennonite church, I have seen laments and call to action. And they might be something like, we acknowledge the deep harm that is happening. We acknowledge the deep pain that is being felt in black and brown communities. But there wasn't action that was met with the lament. We could say, oh, we, we're, we're lamenting, we're sorry, we're sad. We could write beautiful poems that go out in the Mennonite Review. But what is the actions that we're committing with that? I invite and encourage Mennonite churches to consider 
when we're lamenting, as police was telling me, we can also be writing to our congressmen. We can also be thinking about ways in which we can act and move towards justice. And part of that means knowing how we are committing harm. Some of that means calling in accountability, thinking deeply about do I belong in white spaces that have contributed to gentrification or white flight? Do I belong to only all white circles because I have intentionally lived in areas that are white rather than in areas that are black and brown? Those are hard questions for a lot of people to ask. But I invite us as we're in this moment of radical revolution, in this moment of rethinking and reframing what does it mean to be the body of Christ, I invite us to think about those questions as we move forward. I mean, Hillary, I will hush up for now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and that's so fantastic. We just read uh, Glenn Guyton's Call to Costly Peacemaking in our service last week. So. Uh, thank you. That's that's lovely. Um, and, and that's also a lovely segue into our second question about what does anti-racism look like for the American church inside the American church and outside. And I, I want to also, as as I send this back to you, uplift what you said about time and white supremacy, that we do get very stuck in our time bound spaces. I'm cognizant right now that we're we it'd be great if we can wrap up in the next five to eight minutes. Um, and I, I want to uplift. I'm feeling that tension between these these ways of white supremacy and also acknowledging the virtual fatigue that happens for folks. So um, one and, and I think that's that's one of the things we wrestle with, right? Of like undoing that system or that mindset is is so difficult. So I'm thinking like, oh, we have to think about time, but let's also <laughs> let's let's work with that that's tension. Um, and I think this is uh, Polisa, we were going to start with you. Yes. Yeah. So um, right before I answer this, I'd like to name a couple more ways that whiteness like presents itself besides time. I think rugged individualism is one as well. Um, having basically, you know, positive effect. If you didn't, if things didn't work out, it probably means you didn't work hard enough. There's the idea of not really considering systemic factors in our overall success kind of ties into the American dream, but I've seen it operate in the American church as well. So I think that's something that's important to bring up as well as time in the ways that whiteness tends to operate in our churches in this individualistic kind of if you want things to change and if things are working out bad for you, that's probably something you did in your own life. So I just wanted to bring that up because uh, it kind of ties into my answer for this next question. What does anti-racism look like? I think anti-racism work in the church looks the same as it should outside of the church. And what I mean by that is, one second. Developing shared language which I'm really glad that Star um, started off by defining anti-racism, whiteness, white supremacy. I think a lot of the times um, when we start having these conversations, and it's something I forget as well, not all of us are operating on the same definition of racism. And a big part of that could also be because the people that define that term in Oxford and Miriam and all those dictionaries were not people that actually experienced systemic racism. 
So when your people are the ones that have conquered and won everything, then you get the right to define the terms. But that doesn't always necessarily mean that that's what the definition just means that you got there first. So I think part of um, what anti-racism work can look like in the church is developing shared language, um, making anti-racist commitments. So <sighs> examining your library, examining the pastors that you make references to. Is there a pattern in the pastors you make references to? Do they all tend to be people like Chuck Swindoll or um, uh, Billy Graham or Louis Giglio? Or are they all tend to be white males? Like, and why is that? Like asking that question, why is it that the references we make in our sermons tend to all be the people from the same racial or economic groups? And how can we change that? How can we shift that? Um, so looking also at curriculums, looking at um, who are we referencing? What Christian pop culture references are we making, so to speak? Um, Bonnie mentioned reparations. Um, I don't know how much everybody knows about reparations yet. But like, I think it can, it's definitely financial is one, but I also think that um, time is another one that could be considered a form of reparations as well as just whatever you have. Like, and in the book, The Color of Compromise that recommended to you, Bonnie, in the end of the book, he made suggestions about things like freedom schools. So churches investing in maybe sending black and brown parishioners to seminary for free or um, investing in freedom schools that basically teach civic engagement and activism not just to Christians, although that would be a great thing to invest in, like creating, um, I think this is already happening, um, like weekend seminars, basically where you learn civic engagement, you learn advocacy, you learn how to speak and name systems of injustice. Because if you don't have the language to talk about it, you're not gonna be able to fight it. If you don't have the language to talk about whiteness and how it operates, you're not gonna be able to fight it if you don't know if it's still invisible, if it's still normalized to you, then you don't know what you don't know, you know? But I think that's one way anti-racism work can be manifested in the church. I think divesting from whiteness is also a way. And again, like Bonnie said, when I say that I don't mean white people, I mean the structure of whiteness. So again, that goes back to intentionally examining white cultural norms, which that graphic um, would be very helpful for and then looking at other people's norms and then realizing that, okay, so white culture has these cultural norms. They're not bad, but they're not the only way. Just because they've been purported as the normal way doesn't mean they're the only way. And I think realizing that there's validity in the norms of other people's cultures and there's benefit and there's merit to the way that other people move through the world, learning from black and brown churches and learning from black and brown cultures, about different ways to look at the world, that is the best thing from whiteness. Not necessarily saying that like everything in white culture is terrible and you can't learn from it, but I think it's more saying like for so long, the structure of whiteness has told us that this is the norm for humanity. And I think that's created a sort of cognitive dissonance for especially the white Christian church in the sense that like everything else tends to seem like it branches away from what we know to be the norm. And so I think divesting from that and saying like there's validity and there's merit and there's things that we don't know in our cultural norms so we can learn from black and brown communities let's invest in learning that 
let's invest in being the student instead of the teacher. And so that's one way as well. Um, yeah, so I'll pass that off to uh, who's next on our order. Darlisha. Yeah, that was uh, basically all of it. Um, <laughs> that was really good, Felisa, thank you. Um, one of the things that I really wish Felisa had said, because you hit on this so well the last time we did this, so I'm just going to steal it and give you credit, Felisa, is how oftentimes, when, as I was growing up in the white Christian church, we, you hear about, um, you know, God's ways and the world's ways, right? And you always need to stay in your circle of godliness because the second you turn to worldliness, the devil can like come in and snatch you up, which there's like a whole different section of theology we could get into there that I'm not an expert in. But what Polisa said when we were talking about this a few weeks ago is how oftentimes it feels like the white American Christian church is scared to step out of the com their comfort zone. Um, and to examine what secular activists are doing in the community. Um, and I think that there's a lot to learn from, well, there's, a, first of all, there's a lot to learn from everyone, whether you're a Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist or white or black or brown or indigenous. I think everybody brings what they have to the table. And I think that one thing, one way that the American Christian church can really sink their teeth into anti-racism work is to start connecting with the folks in their community without the intention of bringing them into their church. I think that those two things absolutely 100% need to be separate. Um, I, I, my church, I think, does a pretty good job at this. We are situated on a corner in Lancaster City, and directly across the corner is an elementary school. So they set up a table outside for kids to just come up and grab, like, a granola bar and a hot chocolate in the winter. And they do it, I think it's, like, every Friday of the month or something like that. And sure, it's great if those families come to church, too, but there's no expectation for those kids to run home to their guardian and be like, the nice people at the church across the corner handed me this great breakfast, but they also said we had to come to church if they're going to be investing in our community. Like, that doesn't happen. That's not the way to do it, right? So I think there's a lot to be said for the church stepping out of out of our comfort zone. And I think my church does a good job of that. But I so often, I still hear that whole like, well, you know, we can't, we can't talk about X because that turns us into like worldliness and we can't talk about those things. But I think outside of that bubble, there's so much to be learned. And I think that if the white American Christian church can start investing in simple activism practices, and I mean, it, it's everything that Polisa just said, the shared language, like as soon as the church starts adopting these things that for so long we've been taught are worldly or inappropriate to talk about at church, that is the way forward, I think. 
Bonnie, what do you have to add? <laughs> I think you both said it well. Um, I know that we can spend a lot of time going through this. I'm also aware because I'm super type A as well and aware of time. So I'm going to check in with Hillary just to see where we are, if we need to wrap up. I totally understand and have been grateful to be in fellowship with everyone today. Yeah, um, I think we we are close on time. Uh, Javen says keep going. <laughs> um, I I don't know if you want to add maybe one more closing thought. I'm also cognizant that I messed up in our order of worship and forgot that we were going to read uh, Audrey Lord's litanies for survival. So I wonder, Polisa, if you want to close with that, if anyone else wants to share closing thoughts and then if we should close with that. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds well, good. Maybe. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it looks like our, what does it look like to move forward? Our last question, Bonnie, you kind of answered it a little bit, like what moving forward would look like. The only thing is like, well, we talked about that too. Like, is the church prepared to lead? And you mentioned already, like realizing where you are versus where you want to be. I think like the church needs to realize who they actually are so that they don't continue perpetuating harm. That was basically our last question was, is the white American Christian church prepared to lead? And what does it mean if they're not equipped to lead? Does that absolve them from doing the work? Um, I don't think this has to be a long answer. I don't think the church is prepared to lead right now, but I don't think that necessarily like, means that they can't do any work. I just think like we just were talking about and like Star just brought up, like. It just means be humble and learn from movements and groups of people that don't believe like you because they're doing a really great job. Like a lot of the anti-racist people I know that I consider great allies are not Christians. Like it's sad, I, I guess, because I've always been taught that Christian people are the ones who are supposed to be the most loving. And we, there's this rhetoric, I think, in modern church that we have the, we are the ones who should be leading this. So the key word is should. But historically, that hasn't been the case. And like, realistically, I think it's going to take time to unlearn all that. Like, I don't think the church became this bubble of ignorance in a day. And more, the more I read about historically the role that Christianity has played in oppression, I realize, no, it's been hundreds of years. But I do think that if the church just humbles themselves and just doesn't expect things of people, like Star was saying, like, don't do anti-racism work or do all this stuff because you're like expecting them to become another like notch in the spiritual like okay we got another one we got another one like there's this norm and this is in the, the graphic that was shared too another thing that white culture tends to value is numbers written words like, like putting like property like institutions like visible evidence over actually helping real like human people so i think that's something that needs to be examined as well like why are we helping people are we doing it so we can add to our numbers are we doing it because we generally love people and we want to see them free and i think that if we go in there with loving people without expectation that they'll believe like we do or see us and hope that they'll like be like us they'll know that that's genuine and then that woman them curious you know what I mean so 
yeah, but that that's just. But I'd love to read the poem unless, Sir Bonnie, you have any thoughts on that as well. I kind of just want to say two, two, one, one, one quick thing because I think you just hit on what I was thinking about. But and I think Bonnie has said this very eloquently. So Bonnie, um, correct me if I get any anything wrong, any of my paraphrasing. But in our notes, we wrote passing the mic slash taking cues from Black and Brown churches. And I've never been a member of a black church. Um, I've only ever visited a few black church churches. My church is very white, but my pastor is black. So he brings a little bit of that black church, church tradition to the pulpit every Sunday and in the work that he does. Um, but this is just something that I think applies to everywhere in life and not just um, not just the church. I am a strong, strong, strong advocate for yielding to black and brown and indigenous women specifically, um, and then black and brown and indigenous queer folks. Um, I think they have a very unique outlook on life. And then black and brown people as a whole and indigenous people as a whole. I think when you start, when you start from the perspective that you're trying to understand, you will get a lot farther than starting from your own perspective. And that I'm, I speak for myself as well. Um, as a cis black woman, there are issues in the world that I don't fully understand. So I need to go to that source and I need to say, what are, what are these people teaching me? What can I learn from my queer friends? What can I learn from my indigenous friends? What can I learn from my friends who defy all binaries one way or the other? Um, and I think that the church could really, really benefit from from doing that. And I think this is a perfect example, like inviting Bonnie, police and myself here is the, a great step. Right. Um, so I think there's just little ways in your personal lives and in the life of the church to just invest in what the what whatever group it is that you're working to serve or um, learn more about or fight for justice for, like start with them and learn from them about what they need and then just be there to assist, um, not fix. I think that's something that kind of ties into what we were talking about, missions work and colonization. Um, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is a leading anti-racist educator and he, I attended one of his seminars a few weeks ago and something he said really stuck out to me and I will use this as my closing thought, but there was a question that was posed. Someone asked, how can white people help in black and brown communities without kind of buying into that white savior trope? And Dr. Kendi thought about it for a moment and then he said, you know, there's nothing wrong with white people who want to help. What is wrong is white people who want to fix. So if you want to help, you have to go in and say, how can we assist you? We're not here to fix you because black and brown communities and people don't need fixing. Sometimes they need assistance. And if you want to offer that assistance, that is great. But you should never enter it with the mindset of fixing. And I just thought that was really powerful. 